Hi, my name is Andrew Shankman. I'm a writer, mostly of kids' cartoons, and also the host of this podcast, Goodest Notes. On Goodest Notes, our mission is to interview career creatives of all kinds about the best notes and feedback they've received on their work from their collaborators. Because getting notes can be rough, but they can also be good goodest. We're still workshopping the intro. Today's guest is Lisa Gabriel. She's an award-winning TV producer, podcast producer, journalist, and novelist. Her work serving as the senior producer on TV shows like Dragon's Den and publishing her best-selling secret trilogy of books under the pseudonym Elle Marie Adeline are just scratching the surface of her very impressive rap sheet. She's currently serving as the creative EP at Antica Productions, which produces nonfiction podcasts. Hi, Lisa. Hi, how are you? Doing well. I was curious how you think of your work as a producer might shape your work as a writer or vice versa, those sort of like two modes of engaging with creative work. For me, I always sort of start with this idea that I'm pretty agnostic about the medium. Books, podcasts, television shows, all of them are really just about story and structure. And each one is different by virtue of its angle of approach. So a novel is something that I do when I really know that I want to be internal, And it's largely going to be generated inside of me and come out. Producing things like podcasts, especially television shows, these are huge enterprises. They vary in size from a small unit that puts together a podcast. And then, of course, a show like Dragon's Den, which could be up to 100 people on the set at any given time. They're about story, of course. The engine's just a bit bigger. Like you sort of think about it like a bicycle versus like a Mack truck. Each one are propulsive, they move forward, they have wheels. There's a lot of similarities you want to get from A to B. But to operate each one, you have to have a different set of skills. But the basic premise of going from A to B with this vehicle is the same. So that's kind of how I approach each one separately or, or you know, whatever. And they all sort of overlap with this one skill that I have, which I think and I hope is the ability to tell a good story. That's a really sharp way of looking at it. Also, in the same way that when you're riding a bicycle, you're more concerned with your own safety and well-being. And when you're in charge of a Mack truck, other people's lives are (laughs) in the balance. Yeah, you're vulnerable on a bike. And when you're writing a novel, you're very vulnerable because you go away into your head and you created this fantasy world where you're literally talking to people and they actually are real to you. And it's a form of insanity that you get paid for, that people sort of clap and, and think wonderful things about. But it's not normal to, to live that way for long. And right. I can't. I have to mix it up. For me to be a well-balanced, mentally healthy person, I can't always write books. I would be insane by now. I need to leave that world and be around people and get their germs on me and, you know, build my immune system, my my ability to take criticism in particular. Uh, and that comes from getting calluses in the world of storytelling amongst people, as opposed to just me in my own little head. To shift towards some of your more collaborative team-based work, I was wondering how the process of giving notes specifically in a purely audio space like the podcast world kind of differs from giving feedback in more visual mediums like your work in television. It's funny. I was just giving notes this morning on a podcast episode of a show that I oversee. And the senior producer was writing things like, on the show today, we're going to see how this thing is. And for me, it was like, actually, it's a podcast. We're going to hear a conversation about. So my notes are always trying to put this 
this this podcast back into the aural world and remember that we're hearing this thing. We're not seeing it. It's not a show. It's a podcast. But we kind of like lapse into this colloquialism and call it a show. So I, I have a little, that's a little pet peeve of mine when it comes to notes that I give on podcasting. But the similarity is it's a visceral thing I feel when I'm giving notes or scratching out parts that we don't really need. I'm hearing the beat and the tempo in my head the same way that I would be when I'm reading back to myself things I've written, watching video and giving notes on, on video when I know, okay, cut here, this is good, stop. And with audio, it's all a part of a kind of internal rhythm that after 10,000 hours of making stories, you hear and you know when things are dipping or you're bored or this whole part doesn't work anymore, get rid of it. All of the notes that I give from podcasting have been sharpened by my experience as a novelist, certainly, and as a television producer. But I will say that writing books, working in podcasting is an easy uh, leap to make as opposed to a television, like sort of somebody working in the genre of like Dragon's Den or MasterChef or the, the sort of format shows I've worked on. That's a harder leap to make. And because I have experience in, in carrying a narrative in my head for a long period of time, that's what podcasting, making a podcast is really about, is carrying this aural narrative in your head. It's very similar to writing a novel. So it's funny because when I, we were building up Antica, one of my, my friends, Katrina Onstadt, had never worked in podcasting before, but I was certain that her skills as a novelist would lend themselves easily to podcasting. She would just have to maybe pick up a couple of different certain audio skills. And I was right. It, absolutely seamless. Um, and uh, I, I found that to be really interesting. And that was just an instinctual thing. I thought, you know, I bet novelists are good at podcasts. I mean, it makes sense to me that like they're both forms where the words have to do all the heavy lifting in terms of carrying, you know, what you're seeing and feeling. And one last question. I was curious how you balance or harness uh, your instincts as a storyteller and as an entertainer in the realm of nonfiction when you're working with nonfiction? Do you find those things work really seamlessly or are there stuff that you've you've learned to watch out for? You know, again, it comes back to structure and I'm working on a podcast right now, a nonfiction podcast uh, episode about a, a woman who lived a very daring life and it's cinematic. It doesn't need me to torque it. It just needs for the information to be in the right place in order for the episode to really pop. And again, my my senior editor is is a novelist, uh, or the executive producer is a novelist, and I, I'm working with another audio expert on it. So their notes were great; like they were they were considerable. You know, um, it, it wasn't uh, a fait accompli when I handed it in, uh, and I kind of thought, oh, they're going to be so impressed. Look what I've done! I've been able to like really nail this episode, and the, the, just by virtue of like moving things around, you know, their 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 separate thoughts, they've just made it that much more cinematic, that much more like fact is, you know, better than fiction. Um, so it's all structure. It really is, you know, and I've learned that in genre writing for novels. I've learned that in news. And certainly when I was a VJ, it's just all structure, fiction and nonfiction. That's the one thing they have in common, good fiction and good nonfiction. If they're well-structured, they tell a powerful story. With that said, it's time to move into the main section of the podcast. Let's talk goodest notes. Can you tell me about some memorable notes or hands-on practical advice that you've received in your career? Yeah, I mean, endless amounts. And I would go back to my first sort of notes was from Mr. Terry, my high school English teacher, who really did see potential in me. I was one of those burnout kids with bad marks. I hung out in the smoking area with my best friend, Lydia. I was a really talented shoplifter. 
I didn't really know what I wanted to do with my life. And he said right from the get-go, when I first wrote a short story for him, he's like, you're a writer, you should write. You'd be a good writer. And I thought, okay, you know, I don't think you could get a job doing this. You know, I was thinking about working at the keg or Canada Post, but I could just mess around with this stuff. And I did, I won some awards and I won some contests in high school. And then I went to school for drawing and painting. I didn't even go to, to university for writing. But I wrote a short story after high school and sent it to him because I wanted more of that praise. I wanted to hear more of like, you're so talented. And his note back to me was at first very devastating. I carried this note with me almost throughout my entire career. And he said, just because something interesting that's happened to you is interesting to you, your job as a writer is to make it interesting to me. And you didn't do that in this story. And I was just like, you know, it had to do with like the, the summer I spent in Texas chasing this guy who was trying out for the Dallas Cowboys and how, you know, we didn't get along. And, and it was just this little tiny teenage girl diatribe. I mean, the themes are great. And I look at that story now as a great lesson in, in like, I was writing it at the ground level. It's sort of like if you were drawing a life-size map and you got a big crayon and someone said, you know, give me instructions on how to get to your house. And you just sat there and walked around the block with this giant crayon. It's kind of like writing at that eye level that is plotting and only interesting to you. What Mr. Terry's note did for me was it took me up, like almost like lifting me from behind by a crane and carried me right above the entire work so that I could see the map from above and get a sense of all the corridors and turns and, and roads and start writing from that perspective, you know? Start approaching my story from that perspective. You know, he was teaching me about angle of approach and the angle at which I was gonna approach the story had to be an angle that was inviting to other people as well. It couldn't just be this sort of self-serving, navel-gazing story about my summer it had to be bigger. That was a really interesting note to get. Basically, he was saying this is boring because it's only really about something that you see. How am I supposed to see it as a reader? And then another note he gave me around that time, because I wrote back to him, it was so good. And it was like, readers are foragers and writers plant things. And you want them to find what you're planting. But they can't find all of it all at the same time because then they're not really foraging, right? They're just gutting out a bush and walking away with a bunch of stuff. I'm planting, I'm, I'm putting out rows and rows of things, I'm being methodical, I'm building, I'm growing something. And I'm hoping that people come to pick what I put down. That's a really beautiful way of looking at it, actually. <laughs> I'm gonna take that one with me. I'm starting to notice sort of a theme across the different discussions we've been having through the podcast of the power of both an initial burst of like, I see you, you have talent, you have permission to engage in this creative work. And then that kind of harsh but fair dig in or the opportunity to kind of work from a different perspective. I think that a lot of that early stuff that other people notice in you also is tinged with a bit of precocity, which it has to be, right? You have to kind of be precocious enough to go like, I think I can play the guitar and write a song. Or I think I can actually write a story and send it to the Windsor Star and win a Christmas contest award. Like there has to be that. And I think you don't want to quash that precocity. But if you want to take this work seriously and if you want to get the job done, you've got to burn off some of that precocity. They call it killing your darlings, right? You know, the special turns of phrases that make you feel clever. Again, go back to foraging and planting, right? What you're saying is like, look at this fantastic berry. 
You know, it's right here for you to grab. And I grew this and it's so shiny and perfect. But a forager wants to work to find something. They don't just want shiny stuff to grab. So you had to kill your darlings. Those big ripe fruit, they fall on the ground first and they rot for a reason. That initial, I think you're great and you have talent is amazing. And that's what Mr. Terry gave me. And then he also burned off some of my precocity relatively early before I even started taking myself seriously as a writer. And he did me a great service. I'm curious if there's any memorable notes that occurred to you that were like extremely hands-on or extremely specific craft stuff that, that stands out in your memory. Well, for podcasting, again, it changed my entire perspective. Uh, it was to lead with your tape. And at first I thought, what does that mean? You know, lead with my tape. Of course I'm leading with my tape. It's, you know, I've got tape and it's in my, it's in my paper edit. But what my colleague meant was that I have a tendency, for instance, to say write a podcast episode where, because I'm writerly and I'm a writer, is to write the whole thing out and then find places to insert sound ups and tape. And I had it backwards. What I have to do is look at my transcripts and listen to my tape and lay down my clips and then build my story around those clips and not the other way around. And that has been a game changer for me as a podcaster. Lead with the tape that you've gathered. Let that tape, the strongest parts of the tape, define your chapters and bits, and then use your script to scaffold and kind of support and point to it, but not to take away from it, not to be the center. And I think that in particular, if you're a podcaster, is some of the most powerful bits of advice that I have received so far. And as a novelist, the most profound note that I ever got, and it's all over those uh, that manuscript that I sent uh, a picture of. I kept it because it is so humbling to get back this, you know, perfect manuscript that you've written from your editor in New York 20 years ago, covered in post-it notes. And all of the post-it notes, if there's one theme in all the notes in terms of how to tell a story, how to write a novel is what do they want? What does Faith want here, my character? What does Faith's mom want? Because what she's asking for is, what is the engine of this whole thing? What is propelling these people forward? What's making them function? What's making them make the decisions that they make? What's making them make those mistakes? What do they want? And then it, that also becomes all of the little components that create your plot, whatever the plot is. And so as a novelist, that one note in a little post-it note that's sprinkled throughout that novel gave me something to work with because it gave me a question to answer. And then that answering that question for my characters gave them a propulsive move forward, which then laid tracks for plot, you know, chapters, the whole thing it comes from that one question, all of it. So now I don't approach anything anymore, even an idea, because ideas really are a dime a dozen. The execution of that idea is based on whether you have the answer to that question, or actually you don't need the answer, but that question has to be paramount to what that character is and does. What do they want? The difference between an idea that's kind of curious and abstract and something that's up on its legs and moving and generating and bouncing off stuff. Exactly. And it also shows that you respect your character, that you love them enough, that they have enough viscera on their form to stick around and they're worthy of being central to your project. And then the other one I got from another editor, it was a short story I'd wrote, and I thought I was being clever as hiding hiding something crucial from the reader and thinking it would explode into the, you know, the, the climax of the story and how clever. And that editor just moved that whole thing to the front and gave it away in the first paragraph. 
And she said, spend it, spend it all, spend everything off the top and trust that you can still get there. And go deeper. Exactly. And it forces you to do that. And that applies to all mediums, right? It applies to songs. Come out the gate with that. Like spend that first line, spend it. And then, and then it forces your hand. It forces you to keep building a certain kind of expertise. It makes you think bigger than what you actually thought you had. That is an extremely goodest note. Now we're moving on to unsolicited feedback. The conceit here is I'm going to throw you out some topics and I want you to try and give some constructive notes about this item or abstract idea. I first wanted to ask you to give notes on clay. I know that you are a sculptor and have recently rekindled your love of working in that medium. Do you have any unsolicited feedback for clay or other sculpting tools? I would like to tell clay to be softer than you present yourself to be. I find the people that throw with hard clay are showing off. It's hard. And it doesn't have to be, like, clay doesn't have to make it so hard, I would say to clay. Clay has a reputation of being pliable and easy to manipulate. And it's kind of bullshit. It's like a bait and switch. So I would tell clay to relax a little bit more. Do you have any unsolicited feedback for book covers, cover illustrations? Yeah. Why are you always so primary color right now and full of big fat fonts? Where did all of the sort of naturalistic or realistic pictures and pretty stuff go? Why did you become so Instagram friendly? Like, I still like to browse bookstores. I want to look at a book cover and be pulled into some little tiny pastiche or a weird little thing. And now you're just all like big blocky letters uh, with some swirly snakes that run through it. And I'm really, really bored of it. I'd like to get back to a place where the title is kind of low at the three quarter sort of down, you know, whatever, with a little, you know, font and then a picture that sort of tells me a little bit more about what the book might be about. I, I want to go back to a simpler time. That sounds nice. I would also like that. Yeah. This is called Noting Your Past Self, and the conceit of this is that I have invented time travel, and I am squandering this technology by using it for the sole purpose of allowing you to give notes and feedback to your past self. So I'm curious, with that in mind, is there a point in time and a piece of advice that leaps to mind that you would give to a younger version of yourself? Yeah, And I thought a lot about this, you know, I have bits of advice like, you know, don't take things so personally, you know, notes aren't criticism, that's part of the collaboration process, you know, nothing gets made in a vacuum, and all that stuff is true. But I always really look back on this gap between my novels, one came out in 2002, and the second one came out in 2009, because I couldn't really stop drinking. I wasn't homeless, I didn't lose my job, but I was drinking to excess three nights a week, And when I was younger, I used to think of alcohol and the creative process went hand in hand. You know, I used to think that, oh, this is where I get my good ideas, get a little bit high, think about funny stuff, and I write them down. And what I realized was that I was actually creating things despite the fact that I was often fucked up, not because I was. And it took me too long to stop drinking. And finally it did. I stopped in 2006. And since then I've written like eight more books. Boom, boom, boom. Like they just kind of come out. Some of them are more literary and creative than others. Some of them are just to make some money. But like, 
I've become an artist or a creator who is reliable in the sense that if an editor gives me money and says, we'd like this book in 18 months, I can deliver. Whereas my second novel was bought and paid for right after my first. And it wasn't until my editor in New York said, we're going to actually get that money back because your book is not happening. And I was writing a book about a party girl. I was writing a book about this sexy, funny party girl, Sex in the City at the time, you know, it was like 2002 and three and everyone was still smoking in bars. And I got sober and then rewrote the entire book from the perspective of her beleaguered sister who has two kids and lives in a small town and is watching her party girl sister just explode her life. And it became such a good book after that. So much more truthful and honest. Uh, But it took eight years. It took what it took. If I could tell my younger self any advice, I'd say, you know, quit drinking sooner. We all struggle this creator or not can fall into those ruts. But I do think it's interesting that in making creative work and mood and being in a certain space, being so part of the process that we can fall prey to relying on those things or thinking that we need them. And I really thought I would break something essential if I didn't drink, like I was going to wreck my tool or something. I would no longer have access to the depths. It was paradoxically the opposite. Once I put it down, it was like, oh my God, there's so much there. I didn't even know. And then it became this giant below ground pool just filled with stuff and the alcohol just draining the pool out. And suddenly I could see all of the things at the bottom that I'd been ignoring and not wanting to think about or talk about or write about and just all became part of my new toolbox. So, I, I mean, if anyone out there is struggling with that, I would suggest do everything in your power if you're a creator to put down whatever it is that's stopping you from being able to do that. Yeah, and to tie back to your original metaphor of the bike and the Mack truck, it's like to do either of those things safely. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you, you need to be, be sober. Well, Lisa, thanks so much for digging deep. Is there anything that you're working on that you'd like to plug? Yeah, I mean, I was, I was referring to the script that I just, I'd written for a podcast that's coming out in the spring with the Leo Beck Institute in New York. Wonderful stories about German-Jewish diaspora. I'm writing an episode about a woman who was a Nazi spy during the 30s. And the note I got on that right out of the gate, because I work with these expert storytellers, was you're writing this from 30,000 feet. So kind of harkened back to what Mr. Terry said, right? So I have to get right down on the ground again and, and write the story, not write the story about the story. And it's a muscle. When that podcast comes out, I, I hope everybody gets a chance to listen to it. We don't have a name for it yet, so I can't really plug it, but um, it'll come out in the spring and we're really excited about it over at Antica. This has been Goodest Notes. If you have a subject you would like a future guest to give notes on, please write into goodestnotes at gmail.com. And that is the end of our show. You can find us on Instagram and Twitter at Goodest Notes. We're produced by Drew Thomas, who also wrote the Goodest Notes theme song along with myself. We held hands the entire time. How nice. Let's do this again. We did a podcast.